Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. I had an impromptu visit to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York just a few weeks ago on my way back home from India. It was a rainy Sunday afternoon, and so the Met was predictably crowded. Lots of umbrellas, lots of people wearing black, which is something you notice right away when you've just been in brightly clad India. So I made my way through the hallways of one of my favorite buildings in the world, jet-lagged and in kind of a sleep-deprived fog, which can be an interesting liminal way of looking at art. Colors and shapes pop. Things that shine have extra shine. There's a painting in there by 18th century French artist Jean-Baptiste Greuze. It's called Aegina Visited by Jupiter. It pictures a young, naked nymph staring up at Jupiter or Zeus, who's in the form of an eagle. He's getting ready to carry her off, of course, which is what Zeus does with young, naked nymphs. To be honest, it's not a particularly exciting painting. The eagle looks a little too scrawny to carry off the nymph. There's nothing about that eagle, in fact, that seems infused with the energy of the god of thunder and storms. And the nymph looks like a million other depictions of pale, Rubenesque, late Renaissance women staring up in that helpless, swoony, save-me kind of way. So the painting probably would be of very little interest at all, except for a recent tweet by Bette Midler. Midler tweeted a photograph of three teenage girls sitting on a bench in the museum, their backs turned to this painting, focused instead, of course, on their smartphones. She added the caption, What's wrong with this picture? The interweb, predictably, erupted in reply. Some voiced agreement for Midler, responding with a hundred variations of kids these days, the overwhelming implication being that young people spend way too much time on their phones. Not so fast, cried others. We don't have enough context to really know for sure what the three girls were doing. They could have been taking a short break after hours of looking at art. I mean, really, museums are great, but who hasn't needed a break at a museum after all that slow walking around? Some suggested, and I'm not sure if this was ever verified, that the girls had actually downloaded the museum app and were reading info about the art on the app. So, what's wrong with this picture? asked CNN arts writer Scotty Andrew and then answered the question, absolutely nothing. Okay, so as you can imagine, I'm not overly fond of humanity's obsession with phones. I'm not a fan of how much of my attention my phone gobbles up every day, and how much of it I give over willingly. I think we have to take it seriously when studies show that phones are contributing to rates of teen depression and isolation and loss of attention span, And with a seven-month-old son, it's strange but true that he's already incredibly interested in our phones, and my wife and I are already talking about how we're going to limit his phone time. So yeah, phones have their problems. But here's the thing. Did anyone stop to consider in this whole Midler and the Met dust-up that a museum is actually a whole lot like a smartphone? That fundamentally they're kind of the same experience? Hear me out here. Both museums and phones have a basic interface that is flat and rectangular. The screen, or the museum wall, 
This interface is populated by little squares. Each of those squares represents something different, a different thing to hold our attention. And so our attention wanders from square to square, never fully wrapped or absorbed in one square. In a museum, we drift from the art of the ancient Middle Eastern world, to the art of Oceania, to the art of ancient Mesoamerica, to endless halls of Renaissance paintings, to the Impressionists, to the Cubists, the Modernists, the Primitivists, the Expressionists, and on and on and on. The whole human artistic journey laid out for us like apps on a phone. To be observed from a distance, briefly, distractedly, viewers spending an average of 27 seconds looking at each piece of art, they say, and then the next piece of art is observed, and the next. It's very similar to the experience of scrolling. Instagram is a kind of museum, and a museum is a lot like Instagram. And so the experience of walking through a museum, and don't get me wrong, I love going to museums, but the experience isn't always necessarily some grandiose experience of rapture at the beauty of human beings' creation. It isn't always necessarily an experience of oneness or connectedness or timelessness or immersiveness. It's very much the experience of being separated from something and looking in on it, somewhat distractedly, and moving through it as an outsider. The art is separate from you, and you and the art and the nature that surrounds it are most likely three very different things. And that separateness is just kind of how it is. We're on the outside, looking in at art. You wouldn't consider, say, rubbing the art all over you or adding your own personal touch to the art, or taking what others have added to the art and touching it to your head in order to infuse yourself with the power of the art, as if art were a living force that could be passed on in a state of rapture through touch. No, you'd be arrested. Art as something to look at or ignore from a safe distance. Art removed from context. Art that lives as boxes on a wall the way that icons live on a screen. Art that exists only as object is a very recent phenomenon. Today on the podcast, we look at varying visions of art in cultural context and move towards a conclusion that art, perhaps, isn't just in the object. It's in the state and quality of interaction between subject and object. Art, in its traditional context, reinforces the animate force of life and is a gateway for an experience of this animate force. And if the observers aren't delivered into a state of rapture by the art, Perhaps it's not a reflection on them, but on the entire context in which we view and compartmentalize art. The shape of art, place, relevance, and the living force between adorer and adored. This time on The Emerald. If the postmodern late capitalist world were to have a shape associated with it, it would almost certainly be a square. A square is a very efficient shape. If you want to build lots of buildings in a very short amount of time for not too much money, then the square is the shape for you. You can stack squares on top of each other. You can arrange squares in rows. One of the other things I notice most when I return from India, besides how many people wear black, is how our society is organized in boxes. We live in little boxes. We sleep on boxy beds and boxy rooms, wake up and get our food out of a box. Then we drive in a little box along streets that are organized like boxy grids, 
past rows and rows of little boxes until we reach the box where we work. Inside that box are lots more little boxes, including that most box-like of all spaces, the cubicle, upon which sits the box through which we interface with the world. So, both museums and phones are reflections of the primary interface through which we live our lives, a compartmentalized box through which we scroll through worlds of stimuli, but accord none of it our ultimate focus. We could call this cultural and geographic landscape and mindscape compartmentalization. The rise of compartmentalization has a close affiliation with convenience. It's easy to transport boxes. There's even a book about this. It's called The Box. It's about the first guy who thought up the crazy notion that the shipping that we do on ships, trucks, and trains could all take place in the same box, the shipping container. It sounds simple. It crushed industries and changed worlds. If you're an artist interested in selling your art, squares and boxes are very convenient. Making art in a small rectangle or square helps to transport it and sell it. If you're a patron of the arts, you buy art that is in little rectangles so that it will fit neatly on rectangular walls. In fact, much of the way art is produced and thought of today can be traced back to what's most convenient for early Renaissance Italian upper-class families to put on their walls. Compartmentalization also has a close affiliation with Cartesian graphing and the tools of the people who designed the geographic and therefore mental layout of society, who did so on square sheets of paper with rectangular rulers. There's a book called Why Are Most Buildings Rectangular? One of the book's answers to its own question is that because the tools through which buildings are designed are rectangular, harder to design a round building or a building that looks like a trilobite or a sea slug or branching alveoli with a ruler and a square sheet of paper. So compartmentalization is convenient. But this division of geographic space reinforces a compartmentalized mental geography as well. As mental geography and physical geography became a mutually reinforcing infinite reflection of boxes within boxes, we find ourselves in a compartmentalized world in which everything occupies its own distinct box. This is the box where God lives. This is the box where science lives. This is the box where art lives. place things in boxes that represent where those things are supposed to live and nowhere else, the more difficult it becomes to escape from this worldview of boxes. We find it hard to fathom that art and science could ultimately be one thing, for example, or spirituality and art, or art, spirituality, and nature, or, God forbid, science and spirituality. That compartmentalization has another quality to it. Confinement. Have you ever been to a big box retailer, convenient name, and been walking through the rectangular aisles of compartmentalized detritus and suddenly lost all hope for humanity and you just needed to get out of that box? Or had a moment of terror at the 24-hour grocery store, perhaps at 2 a.m. while coming down off of psychedelics, not that I've ever done that or anything. Have you ever had a terrifying insight into how weird the supermarket actually is? Blue Hawaiian punch in boxes? Two takeaways, never trust blue food, and get me out of this box. 
Boxes seem to confine us. The box has an innate sense of limitation to it. A box is a trap. Jail is a box. Solitary confinement is sometimes called the box. Which may also be why when people go postal, it is a ritual that happens in the most sterile and boxy of our spaces. It is, in a way, a wild howl for freedom, a longing to burst out of the box that contains us. Of course, putting things in separate boxes also serves a big purpose in a secular culture. Given the state of organized religion, it's good for organized religion and politics to be in separate boxes. But what happens when we put art, a phenomena that was once indistinguishable from ritual, from connection to nature, and from group catharsis, what happens when we sequester art to its own separate box? Let's take those three girls in the Met again. Let's imagine that instead of a school field trip in which they go from the box of their house to the box of their school and then to the box of the museum to look at dozens of little boxes on the wall and conceptually try to imagine why this little box with a painting of some abstract Greek god contains any relevance to their lives, let's imagine this scenario instead. Let's imagine that the geography these three girls inhabit is not just a geography of squares, but a geography of songs. Songs that are inextricably linked to the land itself. Songs that tell of events and heroes and of the places. The East River song, the Hudson song, the backwaters and eddies and thickets each contributing their couplets, and the elms and oaks and club-footed pigeons and dribbling drain pipes across Manhattan Island, all alive and humming their part. And those gray smooth stones in Central Park, the eyes of raccoons twinkling at night, stars and skyscraper lights shining in the Central Park waters, all part of the song. And these songs aren't random, they're part of a great story, the epic story of a place, Manhattan Island, and of the ongoing exchange that happens between people and that place, a story of breath and life and exchange, so that the geography we inhabit is therefore a unified body, literally seen in some traditions as the body of the universal mother goddess. And the three girls grow up in a context knowing the songs of each place, hearing the great story over and over again. They grow up knowing how to invoke these songs of place, and how to feed the trees and thickets and eddies. And when they finally decide to visit the Met, the Met is not simply a box full of boxes, a place to look at things detachedly from the outside, but a nexus, a vortex, a funnel that houses a distinct point of focus, a stone or a tree, or a work of sculpture that is a quintessential part of that great body, an object, a ritual object. We'll call it the work of art. There are thousands of people flocking there to see the work of art, and voices are rising up in a clamor as the crowd inches its way forward to the work of art. They're shouting lines from the great story and singing the songs of place, the songs of Manhattan Island. Because of course, ultimately the story is indistinguishable from the place, which is indistinguishable from the work of art. And when the three girls enter that chamber that houses the work of art, people are falling to their knees and lighting flames at its feet and pouring butter all over it and adorning it with a rain of flowers and pouring brightly colored powders on it and reaching for the residue of the brightly colored powder that has fallen on it and rubbing it on themselves. And there are shouts and cries and a loud, vibrant exchange between persons and object, an exchange that quite possibly is the true work of art. Not the changeless object at the center, but the clamor of life and ardor and rapture that exists, alive, between the subject and the object.
So compartmentalization is convenient. This is Jupiter and Agena. This is Van Gogh's vase of irises. This is Jackson Pollock's early years. Compartmentalization has its value. It can ensure, for example, that the work of art doesn't attain such importance in the popular imagination that a select few might start to sell access to the work of art and create all kinds of rules around it and forbid some from seeing it and cast aspersions upon those who fail to recognize its value, yada yada yada. But a lot is lost when we remove art from context as well. How would your view of art change, for example, if you understood that the art was not just the object, but the ritual interaction with the object, and that the object was an expression of an artful natural world that hummed in response when the art is honored artfully, that the art was your own body humming in time with the art and the artful world, how would that change your view of art? How would it change if you knew that paint itself is a living being? Let's talk about paint and powder. If you visit a goddess shrine in India, and this is true from the small goddess groves and forests to the major urban temples, you see a lot of red. Red powder, that is. Bright vermilion powder everywhere, adorning stones and banyan trees and the throats and hearts and foreheads of sculpted beings and of the devotees. Powder is transferred from the devotee to the sculpture and back to the devotee. You could write a PhD dissertation on the aesthetic and somatic exchange at play in the use of powder in an Indian shrine. The powder is a blessing, sure, but it's more than that. It's a vehicle of artistic and experiential exchange. It flows freely from the body of the adored to the adorer, to the point that sages of particular accomplishment are said to exude it, this ashy residue, like a fine vibratory cloud. Shiva splits his forearm vein and laughs as fine ash pours out, and even today fake holy men in India woo their followers by hooking up elaborate apparatuses to give them the appearance of pouring forth with holy powder. But the use of powder is simple. The powder suggests that the art is not just the object. The art is the interplay between adorer and adored. Art is a state of being, a state of reciprocal exchange that leaves residue. So powder is energy. And what we truly do when we are interacting with art is exchanging energy. Lots of energy. Lots of powder. Powder cascading over a golden lion. Powder clinging to the creases and curves of the goddess's body. Powder on the throats and foreheads of the adorers and the adored. This ritual use of powder as inherent to the artistic experience is very, very old. Let's just say that people have been covering objects in red powder for a very long time. Joseph Campbell says, We are reminded also of the famous Paleolithic figure of a naked female known as the Venus of La Selle, which was carved in bas-relief on the wall of a rock shelter in southern France. And he's talking 25,000 years ago here. She has the great hips and breasts typical of the female figures of the early Stone Age art, and is holding in her right hand a bison's horn, lifted to the level of her shoulder. 
the left is placed upon her protruding belly, and sufficient traces of ochre remained when she was found to show that she had once been painted red. Images of the Divine Mother from Siberia were covered in red ochre powder as well. Dozens of them. The Venus of Hohlfels in Austria was once coated with red ochre pigment, as was the Venus of Willendorf, and across the New World we find the same thing. In Africa, dating back 75,000 years. In Wales, the Paleolithic burial called the Red Lady of Paviland, from its coating of red ochre, has been dated to around 33,000 years before present. But this ochre wasn't just paint as we think of paint, and this is important. Here's André Leroy Gouran from The Art of Prehistoric Man in Western Europe. Quote, the use of ochre is particularly intensive. It is not unusual to find a layer of the cave floor impregnated with a purplish red to a depth of eight inches. The size of these ochre deposits raises a problem not yet solved. The coloring is so intense that practically all the loose ground seems to consist of ochre. One can imagine that the Aurignacians regularly painted their bodies red, dyed their animal skins, coated their weapons, and sprinkled the ground of their dwellings, and that a paste of ochre was used for decorative purposes in every phase of their domestic life. We must assume no less if we are to account for the veritable mines of ochre on which some of them lived. And, quote, According to some scholars, Neolithic burials used red ochre pigments symbolically, either to represent a return to the earth, or possibly as a form of ritual rebirth, in which the color symbolizes blood and the great goddess. So if you want to solve the mystery, look no further than the goddess shrines of India. 30,000 years later, and we are still pouring red ochre powder on images of the mother goddess. The powder is still a direct invocation of blood and fertility, all these years later. The powder isn't decoration, it's energetic currency. It is the art that flows between subject and object, between the shaman and the spirit world between the individual and nature. And the powder is something else, too. It's an acknowledgement of place. It marks a place on the living body of the earth, on the body of the devotee. It is the transformation of that place into blessing, into timelessness, into art, all of which are the same thing. So ancient is this connection that the word for powder or residue in Latin, citus, also means place, and the word vastu in Sanskrit means both residue and place. So when we realize that the cave, the place, the cave where our ancestors painted for thousands upon thousands of years is not just an art gallery, when we realize that they chose places where the acoustic resonance was most pronounced, places with particular patterns of rock in which the rock could serve as a membrane, between this world and the spirit world, that they gathered there not just to paint as we think of paint, but to hum in unison and cast their powders on themselves, on stone, on the cave wall, 
to color themselves and their ritual objects with the ochre residue of life and vitality, to exchange energy and launch into trance. The cave as place for art becomes something far greater than a gallery. The cave as place of art is the cave as portal to union between self and cosmos. The cave is the consciousness of the artist and the hollow space of the sky and the song and the living celestial animals breathing as one fertility and blood and all of it is art. The art is alive. painted surface is a real living form, says Kazimir Malevich, one of the founders of the abstract movement, who sought pure feeling in art. So it is in the old Japanese folktale The Boy Who Drew Cats, whose painted animals leap to life one night to defend him from a malevolent ogre, and the boy wakes the next morning to find his whimsically painted cats with blood dripping from their claws. Yoko Ono, who was a painter once, said, Use your blood to paint. Keep painting till you die. The idea being that the paint itself is the vibrant force of life. There's a reason all that cave ochre and all those goddess offerings are red. It's blood. Red is life. In his book A Cosmos in Stone, David Lewis Williams tells of how the son of the Kalahari make paint with glistening hematite dug out of the basalt mountains. Quote, it had to be prepared under the full moon out of doors by a woman who heated it over a fire until it was red hot. After this, it was ground to a fine powder. The artist then needed the blood of a freshly killed eland with which to mix his paint. The use of eland blood is particularly significant, as the shaman artist used the blood to infuse their paint with eland potency. As shamans danced, they turned to face the paintings when they wished to heighten the level of their potency. Paint was thus powerful and trance-inducing in and of itself. The paintings were not simply depictions of other things, animals, people, visions, and so forth. Rather, they were things in themselves. They had a life and existence of their own. Probably for shamans trancing in the rock shelters, the paintings were visions. We may say that many paintings were less like a zigzag symbolizing electricity on a fuse box than an electric wall plug to which appliances could be connected. The walls of rock shelters were the gateway to the spirit world and interacted with the ritual paint in ways we do not fully understand. Looking at the rock with its paintings, trancing shamans were drawn through the tunnel and into the world of the gods, the rain animal, and their own therioanthropic transformation into animals. There they remonstrated with God, captured the rain animal, see strange and wonderful frightening things, and then return to the mundane world. The ritual act of painting lured those images through the rock face and fixed them there for all to see. Even unpainted rock may have been as pregnant as silences in music.
inherent to this vision of art is art as a living force that flows between nature and person and is accessed communally through ritual. In fact, some 20,000 years after the Venus of Lasalle, the Rig Veda introduces the world to a Sanskrit word, Ritta, a great verbal root that gives us the word order and art and ritual, and is used to mean the great order of the cosmos itself, which is inherently artful and which is accessed through ritual. The understanding of the oneness of these three terms, art, order, and ritual, leads us to beautiful places, to a universe that expresses through a natural order, from the mathematics of galaxies to the patterns of fingerprints. And this order is artful, infinitely creative, as expressive as a peacock's tail. If we focus on order as some soulless, regimented thing, then we miss the sublime art of it. If we focus on artfulness, but imagine that it exists as some freeform, mellifluous chaos, then we miss how supremely ordered it is. And lastly, if we try to remove art from the ritualized experience of that art, then perhaps it has ceased to be art at all. Various arts movements have tried, of course, to recreate the tactile, the contextual, the ritualized aspects of art. Antonin Gaudi, renowned for his curved buildings and the melting edifice of the Sagrada Familia, once said, There are no straight lines or sharp corners in nature. Therefore, buildings must have no straight lines or sharp corners. Burning Man, of course, is a prime example of a ritualized mass experience of art. Arts collectives like Gelatin, some old friends of mine, brainstormed ways to immerse the audience in tactile experience, up to and including their installation Schlund in 2001 at the Bavarian Theater in Munich, which featured a human scaffolding made of shirtless Bavarians with particularly large, oiled-up Bavarian bellies through which participants could slide as if on an amusement park ride. Santa Fe's own Meow Wolf, an immersive psychedelic funhouse funded with seed money from George R. R. Martin, takes ticket holders on a journey through auditory and multisensory participatory experience. Rock concerts become a mass trance ritual. Of course, the object becomes the rock band itself, not the gods of nature and place. And a lot of problems can ensue when we confuse rock stars for gods. The whole scene can get a little chaotic. How many groupies have uttered the words, I felt like you were singing just to me, to disinterested rockers, not realizing that what they were really describing is the experience of absorption of the individual self into the work of art that comes through ritual adoration of any central object in the trance state. And in the absence of group trance that funnels us towards a feeling of deep lucidity and interconnectedness, we also have fascist rallies. Hitler's rallies were notoriously trance-inducing. It's easy to misdirect the human need for ritualized group trance, and soon the benign red powder of artistic exchange can become another medium altogether. I learned to play the instruments of war and paint in blood, says Cassandra Clare in City of Lost Souls, and the work of art then becomes killing. So yeah, I don't want to come across as too hard on the Met. I love the Met. 
It's simply difficult for modern-day artists or art venues to emulate or even approximate the context that exists when art is fused with ritual, when that energy is funneled towards a point of ritual focus, and that the state of consciousness of the witness to the art is part of the art itself. It's difficult to come close to the experience. A Paleolithic artist or an ash-smeared sadhu might easily look at the Met and say, Where's the powder? No powder, no art. An artist used to the work of art being a centralized focus of ritual might ask, what's the center? What's the focus? In a fully monetized world in which art has most certainly become entangled with capital, it's difficult for the object at the center to end up being anything other than money. And when it is money, ritual tradition gets eaten in favor of newness. What ends up driving the art world is a relentless emphasis on what's new and different. So back to Gaudi our dripping Spaniard. He also said this, Originality consists in returning to the origin. This is an interesting quote, because in Western art movements obsessed with the new, originality usually means something we've never seen before. If we take Gaudi's definition to heart, then perhaps in a world dominated by the experience of scrolling from box to box, All that it accomplishes when we base the value and relevance of art on whether it too is a shiny new box to scroll past is to reinforce a distracted worldview in a distracted world. Perhaps what is ultimately relevant for human beings in this day and age is discompartmentalization, art that unites individual and nature through contextual ritualized experience, that takes us to the experience of revelation through layers of context, through threads of song, through overlapping meaning, the relevance, and relevance literally means to make rise again, relevance, re-levance, is when we are re-uplifted, joined in a seamless experience of individual and artful universe. It can sound lofty, but really it's simple as a pinch of red powder, as a hibiscus flower offered with love to an old stone. This episode contains reference to several books, stories, and works of art. These are Aegina Visited by Jupiter, a painting by late Renaissance painter Jean-Baptiste Greuze, What's Wrong with This Picture? The Answer is Universal, Absolutely Nothing, by CNN's arts writer Scotty Andrew, The Box, by Mark Levinson, Why Are Most Buildings Rectangular? by Philip Stedman, Ardor, by Roberto Colasso, The Artful Universe, by Bill Mahoney, A Cosmos in Stone, by David Lewis Williams, The Art of Prehistoric Man in Western Europe by André Leroy Guérin, The Megalithic Temples of Malta by Giulia Battiti Sorlini, The Boy Who Drew Cats and Other Fairy Tales by Lafcadio Hearn, Cassandra Clare's young adult fantasy City of Lost Souls, and, of course, Schlund, a live human scaffolding of Bavarian bellies created by the arts collective Gillotin in 2001. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com 
slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Rose and Terry, we die.